Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. There's been a rash of shootings in the United States over the past few days. NPR reports a white 18-year-old gunman allegedly carried out a racist attack on a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, on Saturday, killing 10 people and injuring three others. A gunman killed one person and wounded five others at a church in Southern California on Sunday. The shooting of three Korean women in a hair salon in Dallas's Koreatown last Wednesday could be hate-motivated, according to Dallas police. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's one of the top lawyers in California, if not the country. His firm handles police misconduct, including excessive force, deadly force, false arrests, illegal searches, racial profiling, and jail abuse. He is, of course, Attorney John Burris, as always, John, welcome back. Well, thank you. It's good to be with both of you, as always. Uh, challenging times we're living in now, uh, although one might argue it's always been challenging. But this spate of shoot killings is really uh, troubling, particularly as these uh, white supremacists espouse this, quote, replacement theory. It looks like this is an issue that um, these white supremacists have, have sort of fueled young people into or other people into thinking that this is a real issue and they have to do something about it. Uh, you can't imagine that a 18-year-old would drive 200 miles uh, to kill African-Americans after writing a manifesto that really set forth this whole replacement theory, but really, you know, fueled by uh, uh, various personalities who, who espouse this replacement theory and white supremacists and that the minorities and the and the immigrants are coming to take their places. So a very dangerous um, uh, position that are being taken right now and articulated. And the young people, some people are vulnerable to this kind of discussion. Uh, We've seen this before. You know, one of the things that it, a question that it, that raises, you know, and that is the issue of the interest of our personal freedoms and liberty versus, you know, the overall freedom in society from violence. Right. And here's what I mean. There is a history here where apparently he had made some statements in high school that led people to believe that he was considering such an action in high school. And, and, and there may be some mental illness. And then that brings up that question that we always come face to face with is if somebody makes a threat, if somebody is believed to be um, making a threat for that action, how far can the government go? How intrusive can the government be in trying to ensure that that doesn't happen in the future? You know what I mean? Those questions. Anyway, your thoughts on all of that? I think that's critically important because if I look at the facts and well, regarding this young man, the question is, was there sufficient facts known to, um, to the police or the mental health providers that would suggest this is a person who has the potential to do real violence? And that he should then be put on a, a list, a watch list, if you will, where, where he could not then be allowed to purchase weapons of any kind. And so the question, was there enough facts for that to occur? 
Because if so, then obviously there's some responsibility here uh, on the part of either the state agencies or, or whoever um, uh, uh, sold those guns to him. But if not, the question is, what can society do when you have a case that's, that is suggestive but not conclusive about a person's mental illness or about a person's uh, desire to commit violence? And I think this is a question that, that we keep trying to balance. We know on the one hand that the gun advocates are not going to restrict gun use, period. And we just had a case out in the Ninth Circuit out here where uh, they've said that 18-year-olds can buy these assault weapons, whereas before they could not. So the, the, the court that we're involved now with, the Supreme Court, is going to always err on the side of allowing uh, more freedom from buying guns. And unless you have clear evidence that someone cannot, uh, uh, that is mentally unstable, and I don't see the restriction taking place, and I think this collateral damage is going to be accepted as part of what's taking place because Republicans will never, ever put any kind of restrictions on, on gun uh, purchasing of, of guns, period. And that's a, a second amended issue for them, and I think they will um, uh, fight any efforts to restrict it, regardless uh, if you don't have solid, solid evidence. We, I was talking recently about parking and there they had this kid who the FBI knew had some information, they, but they didn't follow up. And ultimately, all those high school, all those kids were killed. Recently, the federal government um, decided to pay the family a substantial amount of money because they themselves had information and they had not followed up on it. I don't know that we have that here. At least what I see so far it doesn't suggest that. I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question, and I don't even know if you if you have an answer, but you're John Burris, and so I think you do. <laughs> There's been a there's I'll just start with the Columbine shooting mm -hmm. and move. There is a pattern here that I see in terms of the age of these shooters, the ethnicity of these shooters, in many instances, the motivation of these shooters. But I don't hear a collective discussion about the pattern. Each of these are handled and discussed and analyzed as isolated instances. But uh, Dylan Roof with Mother Emanuel, about the same age as this guy here in, uh, in Buffalo. I don't hear anybody connecting dots here. Well, I think that that's right. I, I think what is happening is we're collecting data right now. It seems to me we're collecting data, and, and there are some who are making the, the, the um, association and the connection between these very youthful uh, white uh, young men uh, who are sort of being uh, placed in position where they're becoming brainwashed by, by what they're seeing on the Internet. I think that's the real question, this accessibility to this information. We had the shootings in, in a few other places, the same thing up in, in Minnesota very recently. So I don't think that, that much is being done, and I don't know that much can be done, because if you want to attack it, or you, you can attack the study of it and accumulation of data, but whether you can stop, you can put forth something that will affect kids in New York those in California, uh, all throughout the country, whether that can be done, that strikes me as a sort of federalism that that, that will be substantially reduced and, uh, uh, and decided not to go forward. So that's the troubling component of it. We had the, and then on top of that, you have mental illness, and, and there's no, there's just accumulation of data 
but you're not developing a uniform practice that for federal law to take care of this. And I think largely because the, the, the many states and many people are against uh, federalism, and, and even if it may be in the best interest of the society at large, like some kind of restriction on gun purchase of guns. Uh, but they're not going to do that. And I don't see that taking place uh, in the near future. You know, another thing I think that is of great consequence, and that is <clears> – <throat> In so many instances, there is there that we find in almost every instance, to be quite honest, because let's face it, if you're going to walk somewhere and shoot a bunch of people, you're probably nuts. If you're going to drive 200 miles. Yeah, yeah, you're not a saint. Sane people don't do that. But the other thing that's not discussed is in Congress, they'll all say, yes, boy, there's mental illness. Mental illness, the issue. It wasn't guns. It was mental illness. But in America, there's no mechanism for anyone who needs mental illness. Oftentimes, mental illness is accompanied by substance abuse and addictions and things of that nature. There's never discussion that says, well, we need to do something so that anybody who needs needs either substance abuse or mental health facilities or some combination thereof can get them. Well, we deinstitutionalized everybody in the uh, during the Reagan administration. Uh, John. They let everybody go, what you're talking about. They right. Reagan administration let all these people go out on the streets, and that's a part of what contributes to the huge, huge um, homeless problem that we have. There, the, the issues around mental illness and even drug abuse, for the most part, are dealt with on a local basis, except when the opiate issue struck the Midwest with all the young white um, young folks being uh, addicted, then you start seeing a massive effort to attack the private companies, you know, the big farmers, if you will, to get them to pay back some of this money. And for the, gov- the state governments and maybe the county governments to try to put forth programs to help those. those. But I will tell you, and you will know this, when the crack epidemic her- happened and all these young African-American men and women were addicted. There was no effort to help them. They were thrown in jail. But now there's this, so there's different approaches for different ethnic groups, depending upon how serious the matter becomes. If young whites are affected, they will be treated a certain way. And it will be curious to see how they deal with, you know, uh, this young man here who, who may obviously have some mental problems, but I don't think those mental problems in any way are going to uh, and should uh, uh, offset the damage and the harm that he did, largely because the planning that he engaged in. That this is mitigates he may have some form of mental um, imbalance, but it wasn't so bad that he couldn't formulate and conspire to do what he did. I mean this guy clearly intended uh, to go kill people and to try to get away. Because he had an, he wasn't prepared to kill have die himself. You know, he this is not a suicide situation. This guy was planning on getting away. Uh, with his armor and everything else. So and there's not the real effort that I can see on a national level that uh, other than talk and study and stuff, it really comes down ultimately to the local levels and how much your state or your your city, city and county government are going to do about mental illness. We do a lot of efforts and make a lot of efforts in dealing with mental, mental health in terms of the police contacting them mentally on people and killing them, which we're trying to prevent from happening. The question is, what do you do about a person who's slightly mental? And then he has these warped notions about racial superiority and that he then acts upon it. And you have some notice that he's there, he's doing something, but you don't have enough facts. So what do you do about a situation like that? Now, that goes back uh, to the early questions you asked. I don't know that society has developed a way to handle that kind of situation because they still want to balance out your constitutional freedoms. 
and they want to make sure that they're not impinged in such a way that your freedoms are, are limited, even if you may be slightly off. And that's the problem I see in, in a lot of this. I don't know that the state could have done anything more with this young man. Once they brought him in and started, he wasn't, he wasn't totally out of it, that they could stop him. They, it seemed to me they could put him on a watch list of some kind so that, you know, alert um, uh, the others. But I don't even think that the state governments would allow that to take place. You know, I mean, Congress and, and representatives are uh, definitely against any kind of list unless, you know, that's because they're, feel, they're feeling that it might be abusive at some point. So this is, a, this is a most challenging problem we have, and I fear that we're going to have more of these, particularly when you have people like Tucker, Tucker Carlson making the kind of statements he's making, and this replacement theory has kind of taken hold uh, throughout white America. So that's a huge, huge issue. And you would think that this guy thinks that, well, I'll solve the replacement problem by eliminating those who want to get the jobs. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous and mental, uh, but that's the thinking that I think he has. I'm trying to remember. There's what there's a there's a theory about the Civil War that a, that a number of conservatives subscribe to, and now I'm drawing a blank on the theory. But you've got that theory. You've got the the Great Replacement. If you go back uh, to the Virginia. Uh, conflict that we had in Charlottesville, they were shouting this whole replacement theory. I mean, this is this is run now running rampant within the United States, and not that it hasn't existed for a number of years, but now it's come to the surface. It has become so popular uh, that uh, that it, it's taking on a life of its own. Well, guess what? It's not just here. It's not just the United States. This is an issue that is now Ukraine and France and Germany. We know what happened in Sweden several years ago, Sweden or Norway years ago, when this man crazy guy killed all those young mm-hmm. kids, many of whom were people of color. Uh, you know, we obviously know what happened to the Muslims, what happened in, in, in church Christ out there in uh, New Zealand, uh, and aside from what we have in the United States. So, no, this is. This is an epidemic uh, uh, taking place around the country in this gun violence, but it's also about the perception that people of color are coming into people's country and taking over the jobs and taking over things from them. Now, that's clearly what I see in terms of Republican theory about life, is that they're appealing to white communities on the grounds that if you don't stick with us, Mm -hmm. we will protect you we're going to keep the black people, and Mexican people, and people of color, and the yellow people from getting everything and taking your stuff. We got to get out. Yeah. Okay. The lost cause is what I was trying to remember. You put the lost cause with this whole great replacement thing. Man, you've got a formula for atrocity. Uh, John Burris, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Take care, you guys. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Gardner Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Popular Resistance has a piece entitled, It is Foolish for Finland and Sweden to Join NATO. 
Here's what the West is intellectually unable in the midst of its boundlessly self-righteous militarist mood to see. NATO's expansion policy created and is responsible for the conflict. Russia created and is responsible for the war. There exists no violence which is not rooted in underlying conflicts. Conflict and peace literate people therefore talk about both. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He works with Tell the Word, the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. He served as a CIA analyst for the for 27 years. He's on the steering group of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity. Ray McGovern, as always, Ray, welcome back. Thanks. This whole thing now about Finland and Sweden joining NATO it just seems to be pouring barrels of gasoline on a dumpster fire. Well, it does. I was interested to see, though, that uh, Vladimir Putin reacted in an unusually restrained way today. Uh, this is really just in on the wire, as we used to say. Uh, but he said, you know, it's not going to be a problem unless unless uh, NATO puts uh, – uh, offensive strike missiles in Finland and or Sweden. So, um, you know, this brings us back to what really bothered Putin. And as I see it, there was three things that really bothered Putin, Putin uh, one of which he made clear for decades, and that was having offensive strike missiles on the periphery of, of Russia where they could uh, strike Moscow within, well, as he says, five to seven minutes. Uh, if they're hypersonic, even less minutes, okay? Uh, now, that was one of his aims, clearly. And uh, the second one was to uh, kind of destroy the Ukrainian army uh, so that it would stop shelling his compatriots, many of them Russian citizens, in Lugansk and um, uh, um, Donetsk. The third thing was to uh, uh, make sure that uh, the, the Nazis would be removed from positions of power. Now, the Nazi last stand, you know, like Custer's last stand, is right now in Mariupol in, in southern Ukraine. Uh, they're hiding out in this great steel factory. And uh, the next week, uh, I think it's fair to say, We'll know who's down there, <laughs> and we'll be the, it'll be the, the the leaders of the Azov Battalion, avowedly uh, uh, a neo-Nazi outfit, which has been actually responsible for much of the carnage suffered by the Russian-speaking citizens in Lugansk and um, and Donetsk. So what do we have here? We have Putin almost certainly achieving his objective in southeastern Ukraine, namely the Donbass, those two provinces I just mentioned, uh, cleaning out the, the pro-Nazi leaders in Mariupol and elsewhere, and then contending with this fresh challenge that has been actually there since well, he warned about it seven years ago. And these sites, these missile sites that are going into Romania and Poland, they're already established in Romania, and they're 
almost finished in Poland. Now, what are these missile sites? Well, they're called, quote, ABM missile sites. That means anti-ballistic missile sites. That means, oh, defensive, right? So NATO or the U.S. says, no, 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 they're just offensive. And when Putin said, well, who are you defending against? Oh, um, North, North, no, no, not North Korea. Iran, Iran, yeah. And then Putin says, but we just prevented Iran from from being that kind of threat for for five to ten years. Well, you know, they might become a threat, and so we're continuing to believe. Well, what's the real story here? As Putin said seven years ago to a group of Western journalists, look, we know what's going on. We know the Pentagon plans. We know that within just a, we know the time frame they're going to be replaced by Tomagok. <laughs> That's the way. That's the way Putin says Tomahawk missiles, okay, Tomahawk missiles, cruise missiles, and then later by hypersonic missiles when the U.S. could match the Russia in, in creating hypersonic. What does this mean? Well, as Putin himself says, it means that it's less than 10 minutes warning time, and if the hypersonic is five to seven minutes warning time. Now, what would it be from Finland? <laughs> oh, my God. What would how long would it take one of these missiles from NATO to fly and hit St. Petersburg, the second largest and most prestigious city in Russia? Three minutes. Three minutes. Okay. So what Putin is mostly concerned about and what he revealed today is that you know, membership in NATO, we're not gonna threaten Finland. Finland really not gonna threaten us unless unless you do what Romania did and what Poland did and what we hope now that we've uh, pretty much put the kibosh on NATO plans in Ukraine, Ukraine won't do. Now, the last thing I'll say here, because I think it's relevant and nobody else has mentioned it. Uh, you recall at the end of last year, um, uh, Putin called Biden on the 30th of December. He said, we need to, we need to talk. We need to talk right away. And Biden says, well, we just talked on the 7th of December and uh, you know, our negotiators are meeting on the 12th of January, just like, you know, you wanted to hurry up. So well, what, what's the big hurry now? Well, Putin says, we got to talk. Now, what came out of that talk it was the 30th of December. The Russian readout said, President Biden stipulated that the U.S. has no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, end quote. Big deal. It was advertised in the Russian press up and down. This was a major concession that Biden made. What happened? Well, what I consider happened, since it was never mentioned in the Western press or never mentioned again uh, in the negotiations, was the next day Biden's uh, advisors, such as they are, said, now, now Joe, um, you didn't mean that, I mean, <laughs> we have to have the option of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. That's what, that's what it's all about. And just, oh, I didn't, oh, I forgot, okay. So now, I'm Vladimir Putin, right? And I'm looking at that, and I have a promise from the President of the United States talking to me directly on the phone saying the U.S. has no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. And all of a sudden, that disappears from the negotiations, disappears from the radar screen. 
What am I, as Vladimir Putin, to think? I'm to think that even if Joe Biden wanted to do that, he's not capable of making that kind of decision because of the people that have the real power in our country. And so he's got to He's got to do what he can to clean out Ukraine and to make sure that people like the Finns and the Swedes don't get any ideas that they can put offensive strike missiles within range of St. Petersburg or Russia, uh, dwindling Russian warning time to, to three minutes or five to seven minutes. That means that Russians' retaliatory capability has to be automated. I mean, Putin's not going to get any time to make a decision. That means it has to be automated to the field level, for God's sake. And and if uh, one uh, major or lieutenant colonel in the strategic rocket forces thinks Russia is being attacked, now he's not. He's going to go ahead and do it because those are his instructions. That's not what we need, and that's what Putin is is firmly opposed to, and will make. Uh, make sure that the Swedes and the Finns realize what the rules of the game are. Well, uh, there's some new info that just came in. I'm reading this in RT. Turkey will not say yes to Finland and Sweden's NATO ma- ma- uh, membership bids, the country's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, said on Monday, adding that any attempts to persuade Ankara to change its position would be fruitless. You know, this comes after some of the NATO leaders recently said they felt that they'd be able to get around his objections. Doesn't sound like it, Ray. Your thoughts? Well, actually, that means that he's read my tweet from this morning. (laughs) That's what it was. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's see if I get that that tweet up because I want to (laughs) quote it. I, I wanted to embarrass him, okay? I wanted to say... Well, I can't find it, but this is what it said. Um, Will Erdogan uh, back down this time? Back in 2003, he faced down the U.S. when he saw that there was a march of folly going on into Iraq. And he told uh, Wolfowitz and that whole crowd, Rumsfeld, forget about it. I'm not going to let you invade Iraq from the north, okay? <laughs> that destroyed part of their battle plan. It didn't matter. In, in final analysis, the U.S. was able to prevail, of course, but Erdogan uh, made it stick that time. <laughs> and what I said in my final sentence was, uh, "Smart money says that he'll he'll capitulate this time uh, for the right price. Uh, he, he'll, he'll change his mind." Now, <laughs> <laughs> you embarrassed him, Ray. I, no, I still, I still think he'll change his mind. I mean, Erdogan is a kind of mercurial guy, and uh, you know, he needs as much help as he can from the West as well as from everyone else. So my get, my guess would be there's still a safe bet he'll change his mind. But as long as he keeps making this point, are there any other NATO countries? After all, the the decision has to be unanimous to accept Finland and Sweden. Are there any others? It's something to think about. What happens if Jean-Luc Mélenchon becomes prime minister? Doesn't that cause some issues in possibly France? And then we can think about Croatia, maybe Hungary. Your thoughts? Yeah, my thoughts are, yeah, uh, let's let's wait for that to happen. But I think that Sweden and Finland, for reasons best known to them, I think they've gone off the deep end here. Yeah, I think they've gone lemming-like. You know, yeah. that well, in fact, that was that was going to be my, my my next question, Ray. What do you think after all of these years and their neutrality that they've now decided to jump in the pool? 
Well, you know, I see them as, as lemmings. I mean, I can't, well, I see them also as victims of propaganda. Does Russia have designs on Sweden? For God's sake. Uh, does he have designs on Finland? Well, John Mearsheimer calls that nonsense, and that's a mild word to use. So they've lost it. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just going to be really interesting to see if they make some sort of a pledge to Putin not to put offensive strike missiles into their countries because that's, that's, that's uh, throwing down the gauntlet. That would cause a more uh, vociferous Russian uh, reaction. I live in the state of Maryland. The state of Maryland has a larger population than Finland. I don't think they'd hold up all that well against the Russian army should should Putin decide that he's not going to uh, tolerate them putting missiles next to him. Well, you know that cartoon with the lemmings standing on the cliff and one of them says, do we really have to go off here? And the other one says, of course, otherwise we will be defying the tradition of all our ancestors as lemmings, you know? <laughs> Now, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, Erdogan, um, maybe others may be able to prevent it. I think they probably won't be able to prevent it. And Putin, Putin is adopting a sort of nonchalant view. Look, as long as you don't put those missiles in, we don't give a rat's patootie <laughs> whether you put on NATO or not. We do care about Ukraine because that's hard up against our border. Ray McGovern, as always. Thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. You're most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a lot of discussion about NATO expansion. Why is that? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. Uh, Dmitry Peskov, the Russian presidential spokesman, says that Ukraine's hypothetical admission to NATO might produce a situation of a territorial dispute between Russia and one of the alliance's member states. Quote, we have no territorial disputes either with Finland or with Sweden, while Ukraine's hypothetical admission to the alliance might produce a situation of a territorial dispute between Russia and one of the member states. And he was asked about Finland and Sweden's admission to NATO. He said it would be by no means strengthen the architecture of security in Europe. Your thoughts about all of this discussion being bantered about Mark Sloboda? Yeah, specifically what he's talking there primarily is Crimea, right? Um, to a lesser extent, with the recognition of DNR and LNR, the Donetsk and Lugansk National Republics, uh, that, that further complicates the situation. Uh, but he's, he's speaking of Crimea, which the Kiev regime still claims for Ukraine, while the people of Crimea voted in a referendum to get out of Dodge after their government they had overwhelmingly democratically elected was overthrown. 
by the U.S. back to Putsch in 2014 and chose to join Russia instead. If Ukraine were to be admitted to NATO, uh, despite their many deficiencies, uh, according to official NATO uh, standards for joining the organization uh, for geopolitical expediency, that would, however, bring that territorial conflict uh, you know, directly onto NATO's doorstep. Right. Would, would NATO then be obliged to to invade Crimea, uh, drive out the <laughs> overwhelmingly uh, Russian population there? Um, it, it, you know, it, it, it's kind of absurd. Uh, but I think that what is intended by this statement is to point out that while Russia is not happy with Finland and Sweden joining NATO, they have been de facto NATO members for over a decade now, and that the situations are completely different. Russia was saying that they, if the border uh, with Russia is militarized by NATO or they erect military bases, missile systems or other infrastructure uh, for U.S. use, then Russia will reply. But uh, absent that, Russia feels that Finland and Sweden on their own are no military threat to Russia and Russia's response, well, will be uh, moderate to say the least. Uh, we will see some increased militarization of the Finnish border uh, and, and probably over the Baltic Sea as well. Uh, Sweden and Russia don't share any uh, direct border, but uh, there is the issue of the, the Gotland, the island in the Baltic Sea, which is fairly close to Russia. Um, there, um, uh, there won't be any military response. That's basically what Russia is saying. It will be a commensurate troop buildup uh, defensive in nature. And, and by dragging uh, you know, the difference with Ukraine into the situation, Peskov was basically making that clear. Let me ask you this, two things. <clears throat> um, number one, for Ukraine, whatever's, and I, I should put it accurately, for whatever's left of Ukraine to come into NATO, the fact that they're arguing that there's a territorial dispute technically means that whatever's left of Ukraine can't come into NATO because no country can come into NATO by their own rules if it has a territorial dispute. That's number one. And number two, it seems to me like the um, bring, get, going after Sweden and Finland is almost like saying, darn it, we lost Ukraine. We ain't getting that back, even though we're going, you know, we're telling everybody and, you know, the yes, the the valent Azov battalion or whoever are pushing the Russians back uh, all the way out of Donbass. Uh, they know that's not true. They're not getting it back. And it's like, well, we lost that. Uh, 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 Sweden and Finland. There we go. We'll try to grab them over there. At any rate, your thoughts on all of that, Mark Sloboda. Yeah, I mean, it is generally assumed to be technically true that uh, no country with a territorial dispute can enter NATO. It's that said, its rules for admission are fairly free form, and there is a lot of room for interpretation there. And it would not be the first time that NATO has violated its own rules and values to bring uh, countries into NATO that were geopolitically use useful. We have to remember that Portugal and Greece were both brought into NATO when they were dictatorships. OK. Um, and uh, Turkey, I mean, try to get many EU uh, member states of NATO to say with a straight face 
that the Turkish regime of uh, Erdogan is a democratic state. Um, they'll probably choke themselves, <laughs> you know, uh, trying to say it. So uh, what I'm saying is that NATO has, if they feel the overwhelming uh, geopolitical need to override their own supposed rules in order to expedite a geopolitically useful piece of territory into NATO. It is a possibility. And also, I seem to recall early on that another reason why Ukraine was not being admitted was because of thievery and they just said we can't we can't allow you in here because your cor corruption is so rampant i guess all of a sudden corruption has been resolved uh france 24 <laughs> france 24 Wait, the, 40, the 40 billion dollars the u.s of course 40 billion u.s taxpayer dollars i mean of, of, of course that's completely safe that that is not in danger of ukrainian corruption at all because as you just France 24 reports Ukraine making steady progress around Kharkiv, and I think this was part of Garland's earlier point. Uh, fighting was intense around the northeastern city of Kharkiv on Friday as Ukrainian forces were making relatively steady progress in the region. This is, uh, again, according to France 24. Can, can you speak to that? And some of this analysis, I think, is based upon the false premise that Russia is trying to take over the Ukraine. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so first of all, it is true that the Ukrainian forces are making steady progress, um, moving forward to through uh, bravely through villages uh, and towns that Russian forces have already withdrawn from, without any type of protracted combat whatsoever. But um, they have you know, successfully taken empty villages, uh, despite the occasional Russian artillery pot shot as they withdraw. The idea that there are some type of pitched battles here, that the Ukrainian forces are driving the Russians back is ridiculous. Explain people, why, wait a minute, explain why, why the Russian forces are withdrawing right. from these villages. Okay. So, so there are, uh, you know, um, Varying theories on this. Uh, the dominant uh, Western theory is that the Russian attempt to take Kharkov failed and they are retreating. Uh, other um, area, the dominant Russian version would have you believe that they never attempted to take Kharkov, that the whole intent was to tie up the forces there while they complete the cauldron around the majority of the rush of the Ukrainian uh, Kiev regime's military in the Donbass, and that that is no longer needed uh, since the intent is not to take territory. There is also a reading that uh, the intent here is to draw the Kiev regime's forces, particularly at their forefront, uh, is uh, Azov battalion members, out of Kharkov city. Uh, which they immediately retreated into, uh, not being capable of withstanding a pitched battle against the Russian military, and that by drawing them out, an, an eventual Russian return 
to uh, Harkov once Donbass is dealt with will not have to level the city to the ground to get rid of Azov and his friends like they did with Mariupol. So those are the three competing theories. But regardless of the fact, Russia is not being driven back in pitch battles. They are withdrawing in perfectly good order um, and are um, reconstituting their forces, resupplying on the other side, and they will almost certainly be put uh, almost immediately back into um, the uh, conflict zone in the Donbass, where is the the primary interest of the Russian military at this point, because that's where the majority of the Ukrainian military is. I would assess that what's going on in Kharkov is Ukrainian Kiev regime forces moving into positions that Russia has evacuated without any pitched battles. And I do not believe that they are actually capable the type of counteroffensive that is commonly being portrayed in the Western media. What about the story that's floating around about the the, the river crossing? You know, the I've seen articles that said the Russians, yeah, the Russians lost a battalion. No, they lost two battalions. No, the entire Russian army was wiped out. And then I've seen all kinds of. What do you know about the the river crossing story? How much of it is true? Yeah, this, yeah. Okay. So this is um, was that a pontoon to, bridge? That yeah, yeah, there we go. yeah. Yeah. Pontoon yeah. Pontoon bridge. Pontoon bridge. But there are multiple pontoon bridges at this at this point. Uh, uh, crossing uh, the river to encircle Severodonetsk there in Donbass. Um, fr- from what? And again, this is really fog of war territory with vastly uh, competing. Uh, regardless, Russian forces have now successfully crossed the river, and at Severodonetsk uh, is being encircled from behind. Uh, uh, you know, um, basically really putting into danger that Kiev regime salient. But there were some pitched battles fought over the river. Um, that is exactly what the Kiev regime forces should have done. Uh, and they were, it seems to be able to successfully do in several places. But in the end, Russia was able to uh, erect a pontoon bridge a little bit further down the river from the initial engagement site. They're trying to portray it as some mass slaughter of dumb Russians uh, entering a killing zone like sheep. Uh, It does not seem to be that bad, but I would definitely say that there were probably some tactical errors made by Russian that resulted in uh, a a pitched battle uh, that Russia took more losses than they should have. Final question for you, Mark. We know that at different times, stories that the Ukraine is trying to surrender. We know that Boris Johnson flies in and, and squashes that, the, that last attempt. How do you see this thing ending? Will he be able to muster the, the strength to come to the table and say, OK, we're done? Or how do you see this ending? Yeah, I, I see Zelensky as, as a... Um what he is, a comedian, a figurehead who has very little agency in this particular situation, faced with his uh, one side, with his own uh, uh, far-right neo-Nazi death squads and the Ukrainian intelligence services, in which the dividing line between the two is pretty much non-existent, and with the U.S. and the U.K. pushing him to, in the U.S. Secretary of Defense's uh, terms, to weaken Russia, because that is the U.S. goal here. I don't think if he had the desire to 
negotiate for peace that he has the capability to. This ends with the partition, if not the balkanization of Ukraine. Somewhere down the line, uh, the question is, at what uh, extent does that partition or balkanization take place? What rump Ukrainian state is left and what regime actually rules over it? Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Azov insignia-bearing teen carries out streams mass shooting in U.S. The United States has been hit by another mass shooting. This one streamed on streaming platform Twitch by a white supremacist who had no motive but racism and hatred for the attack. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, sir, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. So 18-year-old Peyton Gendron has been detained without bail on first-degree murder charges following a mass shooting carried out Saturday afternoon at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. The spree has claimed the lives of at least 10 people. The latest Buffalo Police Department tally revealed a groundbreaking fact about the shooting is that it was carried out by a neo-Nazi white supremacist who had published a fascist manifesto using the black sun Nazi symbol. The insignia is used by the Ukrainian neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Dan Lazar, are the chickens coming home to roost? Yeah, I think the chickens are coming home to roost. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, I actually read through uh, through uh, the Gedron's 120-page uh, uh, manifesto, and um, he did not cite the Ukraine, interestingly enough, but he did cite uh, Branton Tarrant, uh, the Australian who in 2019 shot up a couple of mosques in uh, in in New Zealand, killing 41 people and then wounding 50 others. And Brenton uh, Tarrant was a, uh, uh, had claimed to have visited the Ukraine, was a fan of the, uh, of the uh, Azov Battalion, the, the neo-Nazi uh, uh, Ukrainian military unit. Um, and most importantly, uh, uh, Tarrant went into battle, yes, if you want to call it that, uh, wearing a well-known white supremacist Nazi emblem called the Black Sun. It's a series of um, of 12 uh, kind of crooked uh, axles inside a circle. Uh, And um, it's a favorite uh, symbol of neo-Nazis and white supremacists. Uh, Tarrant uh, wore it in New Zealand. It it is part of the official Azov Battalion uh, um, emblem in the Ukraine, 
and uh, most importantly of all, uh, Gedron, uh, the the the, uh, the killer in Buffalo, uh, wore it on his flak jacket as well. So um, so uh, so you know there was there's been some kind of silly debate as to whether therefore Azov to bear you know bears direct responsibility for the Buffalo shootings. Uh, but there's no question that these international uh, ultra-right uh, and utterly murderous movement uh, is um, is growing, and um, clearly the Azov Battalion, which is benefiting from billions of dollars in U.S. aid, is part of that movement, as was uh, Tehran's massacre in New Zealand, and clearly the Buffalo massacre is yet another outgrowth. So is it 10 or 11 people, completely innocent people have been blown away. They've lost their lives as a consequence of a growing fascist movement that the U that their government in Washington is helping to grow. That's the the big news. You know, Dan, and and when you watch the news, when they talk about the Azov Battalion, they put them on um, CNN and major media outlets and portray them as heroes. I've read articles where it is said the Azov Battalion is holding out in Mariupol, the fiercest fighters of the Ukrainian. So they build these people up to be heroes, to be 10 feet tall. You've got some teenager, well, I want to be a hero. I want to be 10 feet tall. The government is saying they're tough. Look at them. You see pictures of them. They got on camouflage like the guys in your um, first-person shooter game on your computer, all of this stuff. And they've got these insignias and some 18-year-old kids like, let me look into that. It must be cool. My government's telling me they're heroes. The media's putting them on TV every day. The United States is building a Nazi movement, and these people are going to be walking into mosques, they're going to be walking into Jewish temples, they're going to be walking into black churches, and I blame the Biden and those neocons who are saying, look at these heroes, uh, you know, let's all have a blue and yellow flag for these people. At any rate, I'm, I'm getting a little carried away, but you get my and state today. And State Department spokesman Ned Price was on television last week denying denying the fact that there are Nazis in Ukraine. He says that that whole story is utterly foolish. Dan Lazar. It's a matter of record. I mean, I mean, I mean, every major news organization prior to the uh, Russian invasion uh, did stories on the growing right wing menace in the Ukraine, focusing in on the Azov Battalion, similar groups, similar groups, like the right sector, uh, C-14, et cetera, et cetera. To that point, I posted last week a 2014 story from ABC when Obama came out and said he didn't want to send weapons to Ukraine because he didn't want to arm Nazis. ABC ran a story about Nazis in Ukraine. And indeed, the U.S. Congress put a hold uh, and then 2018, I believe, on aid to the Azov Battalion because why? They are under neo-Nazi influence. Now, suddenly the party line has changed and therefore everyone is singing the exact opposite tune. 
but it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. And, and, um, you know, and somehow uh, an 18 year old kid wearing the black sun insignia in Buffalo is bad, but an 18 year old kid wearing the black sun insignia in the, in Mariupol is good. And it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's, it's a, a cross message, a conflicting message, which therefore essentially gives kids like this guy, this, this, this 18 year old in, in Buffalo seems to give them a green light to go off and do what they will to do their worst. And I'm going to say, you know, and, and innocent people, you know, pay with their lives. It's completely outrageous. I'm reading the New York Times today, and it says the Azov Regiment was initially created in May 2014 as the Azov Battalion, named for the body of water where Mariupol, and it's destroyed. It says, at the time, it was known for its nationalist far-right members, which has been used by the Kremlin to justify its military campaign. Uh, The group's controversial reputation lingers, and though it still has some nationalist members, analysts say that it has evolved since it was incorporated into the regular combat forces of the Ukrainian military. That's the thing. It's dangerous to use that kind of language. But I saw a video recently from people who were holed up in the Azovstal steel plant. They were singing like hymns to Stepan Bandera, a Nazi collaborator. The darn um, Ukraine won the Eurovision contest the other day, and at the at the end of the Eurovision contest, the Polish woman who was running it yells out Slava Ukraine, which is the Nazi cheer, basically, and sticks her hand up in a Nazi salute. And the crowd goes wild. And I'm like, yeah, something doesn't feel right about this, Dan. I think we're going in the wrong direction. And then I see this happening in Buffalo and I'm like, yep, that's the direction we're going in, Dan. Yes, I, I, that is that that is the that that is the good way of describing it. That is the direction that the world is, is rushing in, um, and essentially these kinds of policies encourage that uh, that rightward what rightward rush. I mean, essentially the U.S. is celebrating uh, celebrating and covering up for a group of neo Nazis in the Ukraine who are real neo Nazis. They worship. Uh, Stefan Bandera, they, uh, they, 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 they uh, wear Nazi uh, insignia. They give the straight arm salute. In fact, the winner of the, uh, of the Eurovision contest gave the straight arm salute as he was uh, you know, exiting the stage. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's astonishing. And, and, there's, and these have real world consequences because they, the real world effect is to embolden uh, and increase the ranks of the radical right, which then leads to events like the one in Buffalo. Back in March, Newsweek reported NATO says it didn't notice Ukraine soldiers' apparent Nazi symbol in a tweet. An official of the U.S.-led NATO alliance has told Newsweek that the coalition did not notice what appeared to be a symbol associated with Nazism on the uniform of a Ukrainian soldier featured in a since-deleted photo on NATO's official Twitter account. Another example, Daniel Lazar. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of the Ukraine, on his, I think, his Instagram account, you know, included a photo of a uh, of a of a Ukrainian soldier wearing a uh, a Nazi insignia. 
the so-called Totenkopf death head, skull and, skull and crossbones. Um, and it was, uh, it was widely used in the war and has clearly been adopted by Ukrainian troops in imitation of the Nazis. And let me tell you, Stepan Bandera was so bad, he was actually worse than the Nazis. In 1943 to 44, when they when they when they took it, when they the Bandera forces conducted a vicious um, uh, ethnic cleansing operation uh, in um, in uh, in eastern Poland slash western Ukraine and killed uh, perhaps a hundred thousand Poles. Um, the Poles actually took refuge with German forces. And believe it or not, on at least one occasion, the Jews who were targeted by the Bandera forces took refuge among the German military. That's how bad the you know, Bandera and his followers were. Wow, uh, and that's to bad. See this group now, that's pretty bad, yeah. And to see this group now resurrected. And even Zelensky admits that Bandera is a national hero in Ukraine. Uh, streets, I mean, uh, uh, statues and plaques have gone up in his honor in three dozen Ukrainian cities. The Ukraine issues uh, postage stamps with his portrait on, on them. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, pro-Bandera statues, plaques, events, lectures, etc., are commonplace across the entire country this is shocking absolutely shocking and the and i tell you and the cover-up of this by the western media and western governments is the most shocking the greatest scandal of them all and again watergate look like like a a parking infraction. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, State Department spokesman Ned Price said last week this is a lie he laughed at the idea, and, and what's even worse than Ned Price doing that is, from what I could discern, nobody in the media challenged him. It's a, it's a, it's an immense cover up. It's the, it's the greatest cover up since the cover up of the Saudi role in 9/11. And I'm being quite conservative. That was an immense cover up. That was an immense cover up of a, of a, of a close U.S. ally which was clearly involved in an event which led to 3,000 deaths on American soil. Okay, that was very, very bad. This is of the same order. The U.S. and its lapdog, and, and the lapdog press, corporate press, is covering up a massive Nazi role in the Ukrainian military, and that's an utter outrage. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Middle East Eye reports Lebanon elections. Initial results show a fractured parliament and bruised egos. 
What do these results really show if, in fact, they are results? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So it's reported that results declared earlier today point to a more fractured parliament sharply polarized between allies and opponents of Hezbollah. An outcome analysts said could lead to deadlock as factions hash out a power-sharing deal over top state positions. Laith, what does this mean uh, if, in fact, what's being reported holds, um, or is it too early to tell? Your your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, like the uh, I was just watching right now the uh, minister of internal of Lebanon uh, declare some. Uh, of uh, the results from some writings and uh, also at the same time warning that the final results uh, are not in yet and may be delayed till tomorrow. What we uh, clearly know right now uh, without uh, uh, conjecture or a presumption from the numbers that we have is that Hezbollah won 27 out of the 27 seats that it ran in uh, that its uh, major allies, uh, Amal and uh, the Patriotic uh, Party, led by uh, Aoun, the president, have uh, you know retained uh, their seats from the last uh, elections in terms of numbers, uh, and the absence of uh, the future party led by the Hariri dynasty that uh, for decades you know, uh, kind of monopolized the Sunni vote uh, has opened a space for a lot of independents to fill that gap. So one uh, thing that we are um, kind of also sure of is there will be a lot of new names filling that gap uh, on the Sunni uh, vote. Uh, In terms of uh, other things, it's uh, too early to, uh, you know, uh, give any opinion on. It sounds to me, you know, I've been looking online at a lot of different articles and I see the same thing. Lebanon, early results, Lebanon's Hezbollah suffers election losses. It seems kind of early. And based on what you've said, you've said, it just kind of seems like, um, you know, this is what they'd like to happen, like wishful thinking. So they're going to write all of these articles saying, yeah, Hezbollah, they didn't win a single seat. They were completely wiped out unanimously. Uh, Is that kind of what we're looking at in the mainstream media right now? Or is there some credibility to that? Definitely, if you you know what we're reading in English is is mainly dominated by uh, Western governments and their vessels in the Gulf. So uh, this article that we are referring to from the, the Middle East Eye is is a Qatari funded uh, outlet, and they have an interest, obviously, to uh, you know to, to to make such statements so early. I mean, this article came out before. Uh, much of uh, these uh, numbers that I just told you that have been confirmed by the Minister of Internal have come out. Uh, the uh, the turnout in the elections is very similar to the 2018 election, uh, hovering around the 46, uh, 47%, which is a uh, you know historical norm for uh, Lebanon and even for the United States in terms of uh, turnouts for uh, national elections. And so we see clearly that all these outlets um, that are part of the imperialist camp are uh, making claims of, as you said, wishful thinking. 
Beyond making claims and wishful thinking, do you see any evidence of the United States hand uh, directly in what's going on in Lebanon right now in terms of delay in results or or anything as the United States has a has a track record of doing in other countries? Yeah, I mean, David Schinker, who was the undersecretary for uh, Middle East Affairs and the um, Secretary of State Department, uh, made us an interview just uh, yesterday. And in it, he basically spoke about how they uh, funded all this opposition in attempt to take down specifically the patriotic uh, party of uh, own and uh, its its main spokesperson. Um, and so it, it, we heard at the same time a speech by the president of the uh, Patriotic Movement Party. Uh, and uh, he said that they ran these elections not against uh, the Falange Party or the other Christian supremacist party uh, parties, but actually ran an election against the United States and Israel, that their opposition was, you know, fighting at that level. This is not, it was not a fair fight. And that, uh, of course, regional uh, powers flooded the country with uh, bribes to buy out votes. And, uh, you know, with these results, that preliminary results that we have currently in front of us, it's clear that the uh, billions of dollars that the United States and its vessels in the region spent uh, to destabilize Lebanon and to create a new NGO uh, sector uh, that is beholden by the international funding um, have uh, resulted in zero. <laughs> this money was wasted. Laith, uh, the other huge story, of course, is the funeral of Shireen Abu Akla Jen Psaki on her last day with the Biden administration. Well, I guess she's continuing with the Biden administration. She'll just be getting a check from MSNBC. But she said that the Biden administration quote, regrets the intrusion into what should have been a peaceful procession, but didn't condemn Israeli police violence. And for those who don't know, the Israelis um, attacked and um, beat mourners and pallbearers at the funeral. Uh, they, she basically, they said that they believe that the Israelis can do uh, a competent investigation on their own. Laith, what are your thoughts on the, the latest turn of events here? I mean, you know, look, uh, just a few hours ago, the administration of the French hospital in Jerusalem, where the body of uh, martyr Shirin Abu Akhle was um, before it started, where, where the procession was supposed to start, uh, where the pallbearers were attacked by the police. There was a press conference by the administration of the hospital and the church uh, leadership of the Orthodox Church that funds uh, this uh, hospital, and they ran all the security videos from all the cameras and showed how actually the police entered the hospital, shot tear gas and uh, rubber bullets into the entrance of the hospital before any uh, of the uh, procession um, of, of the funeral even stepped out. Uh, they uh, talked about uh, calls with the uh, leadership of the police, Israeli police on the ground there, uh, where the um, chief of operations told the the administration of the hospital 
that as long as there's one Palestinian flag, as long as there's one chant uh, coming out from the procession, uh, that the police will attack the coffin. And this is what happened. As we saw, the police attempted to take down the Palestinian flag off the coffin. They attacked uh, the pallbearers and wanted to humiliate uh, the, uh, you know, Shirin Abu Akhle in her death. This is how vicious and racist and supremacist uh, these Zionists are. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's unbelievable actually how Western media has dealt with this story, either burying it or uh, providing uh, disgusting justifications for the assassination, the extrajudicial execution of one of the most important uh, Palestinian journalists uh, in the last uh, three decades. And, uh, you know, these images that came out of the uh, attacks on the funeral procession by the Zionists are now uh, seminal. They're, they're, they're historic images that have permeated uh, human consciousness, and it's going to be very hard for the Zionists and their uh, masters in Washington, D.C. to convince the populations of the world that uh, the Zionists can investigate themselves. Uh, in fact, um, it's clear that the Palestinians are going ahead with their own investigation. They're refusing any intervention from the United States. They're refusing any intervention uh, by the Zionists and will come out with their full uh, report on her assassination and what happened uh, in the next uh, few days. So Garland read, uh, Pasaki said the administration regrets the intrusion and, and calling it an intrusion, but doesn't condemn Israeli police actions. Jen Saki says, I would say first, we've all seen these images. They're obviously deeply disturbing. This is a day where we should all be marking, including everyone there, the memory of a remarkable journalist who lost her life. Lost her life? That sounds like she died of natural causes. Or got hit by a car. Yeah. With the disturbing footage from the funeral procession today, we regret the intrusion into what should have been a peaceful procession. We've urged respect. But then Ned Price says we have cons uh, talking about the, U the U.N. investigating Israeli human rights violations. He says we have concerns with the council. We'll, we will vigorously oppose the council's disproportionate attention on Israel, which includes the council's only standing agenda item targeting a single country. As opposed to multiple countries? As Makes they, no sense? They, Laith. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, uh, the, the United States and the West may try to uh, protect this Zionist colony as much as they want. And, and, and you know, yesterday the German government banned any demonstrations uh, commemorating the Nakba, the Palestinian catastrophe, on its uh, 47th year, um, yesterday, the May 15th. And in fact, uh, uh, we're arresting anybody that was wearing a kofia on the streets of Berlin. We're arresting any, uh, if there was two, two or more people gathered on the streets that, uh, you know, made any chance were being arrested. So hundreds of activists, uh, Arab, uh, Muslim and Palestinian activists uh, in Germany got, uh, got rounded up. Uh, but obviously none of that can stop the inevitable end of the Zionist colony. 
Zionism have already lost the ideological and propaganda war. Uh, today, the um, Minister of Defense of the colony, who's also the vice uh, prime minister of the state, said that he uh, fears for the uh, future of this colony that uh, uh, what he predicts in the next few um, we, you know, years and the, the short term is that they will lose all their next battles and they may lose even territory. So they know what is happening and uh, none of them can stop the time, as uh, Bob Marley says. Um, only got a minute or two left, but your thoughts, I think it's weird or telling that the U.S. and its vassal states now are supporting literal Nazis in Ukraine while they call everyone else anti-Semites and support, you know, truly an ultra-nationalist movement and an oppressive anti-apartheid movement in Israel. You know, this uh, debacle in, in Ukraine has been amazing in highlighting and exposing the historic relationship and, and symbiosis between Zionism and Nazism. And uh, those two uh, movements, uh, segregationist movements and supremacist movements, cannot exist without each other. And the truth is, uh, we are, we're seeing the things that have been erased from the history of uh, what happened in the eight, late 1800s and during World War One and World War Two, and how those two movements, uh, you know, were birthed uh, from the same uh, polluted uh, mind of uh, European nationalism. Laith Maroof, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Michael Sussman's trial to begin in first case brought by special counsel John Durham. The trial of former Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman is began today as special counsel Durham's years-long investigation into the origins of the Trump-Russia probe finally comes to court. Sussman is charged with making a false statement and has pled not guilty. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And Steve, as always, welcome back. Great to be here. So Durham alleges Sussman told FBI General Counsel James Baker in September of 2016, less than two months before the 2016 presidential election, that he was not doing work for any client when Sussman requested and attended a meeting where he presented purported data and white papers that allegedly demonstrated a covert communications channel between the Trump organization and Alpha Bank, which has ties to the Kremlin. Steve, you know, uh, 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 before you answer, here's, uh, I think it's a very important position on it. And I think 
when I look at these charges, this is one of the reasons I don't have any faith in the Durham investigation. I find it nearly impossible to believe, particularly given the circumstances, that the FBI had worked with Sussman. They had worked with Sussman on the DNC server, so they knew who he worked for. I find it impossible to believe that Michael Sussman marched into the FBI and started talking to them about Trump, and they didn't know that he was working for the Clinton campaign. It's implausible to me. Your thoughts, uh, Steve? Well, you're absolutely right. So we're we're sitting here, we're supposed to believe that Michael Sussman, through his position, uh, I believe Perkins Cole, somehow came into possession of Trump campaign-related material and had inside information on what was going on with the Trump campaign. And that he didn't take it to the Clintons. He didn't take it to the the media, which would have sunk Donald Trump, right? I mean, theoretically, uh, at least. No, he, he just voluntarily walked into the FBI and said, hey, fellas, no, we might have had a contentious relationship in the past, but uh, I'm I'm on your side with this one. And out of the goodness of my heart as a lawyer, uh, I'm I'm going to voluntarily give up this information for free again as a lawyer. We're going to believe that. I, I don't know. Are they still selling chunks of the Brooklyn Bridge? In fact, I have one. If you if you want, I'll sell it. We'll talk yeah. about it offline. Looks like a normal brick, but it's not. No, but <laughs> here's the other part of it. They had worked with Sussman because when the claim was that the Russians or somebody had hacked into the DNC servers. Michael Sussman was the guy who was worked for the DNC who went out and hired CrowdStrike. So the FBI knew that this guy was all involved. They knew he was a DNC. They knew he was a Clinton lawyer. They knew he was involved in all of this stuff. And I got to add this. That information, the data that he took to the FBI, had already gone to the CIA. The CIA had already looked at it and found that it was fake. The CIA said it wasn't even good information. It looks like somebody made it up, which why he wasn't charged with a crime there, I don't know. So then we got to believe that the CIA didn't tell the FBI or the FBI didn't talk to the CIA. It just seems like an absurd setup to say all right, Michael Sussman's the guy that's going to take the spear in the chest. In this instance, a pinprick in the chest. They're going to give him, you know, a day or something in, you know, in home confinement and then walk away and say, yep, we handled it. We took down the bad guys. Steve. Well, well, before you respond to that, Steve, one more thing, Garland. Let's just for the sake of this conversation for the next, let's just say, two and a half minutes, say that the FBI, when he walked in the door, didn't know who he was, they were still obligated and normal FBI protocol and procedure would have had them ask. So it comes down to either you didn't know or you didn't want to know because you didn't follow your own protocol and do an investigation of the guy bringing you the information. Or they could have went right to Google and found out. That's my point. That's my point. (laughs) That's That's my point. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, no, we're we're supposed to believe that that the FBI in no way, shape, or form vetted their source, corroborated the material, checked with any other agency, or effectively even had a meeting about this outside of, oh, 
well, this was handed to us. So if somebody walked in here and gave us this information, it must be true. Well, then let's just let's pretend like it's true or let's operate under the auspice that it is true. And and we'll just go about our business again without having any contact with any other agency, without having this individual vetted. Um, and, and let's just not follow up on the information either. Let's just report whatever comes our way uh, as fact, log it as fact, and then we'll leak it to the press. What could possibly go wrong? Go ahead. And add this. This is the same FBI who got a Steele dossier, who read the Steele dossier that said the Russians are sending money through the Russian consulate in Miami. And there is no Russian consulate in Miami. So they couldn't figure out that the Steele dossier was bad, even though it invented a Russian consulate in Miami. And add this. This is, to me, the the, the nail in the coffin, final nail in the coffin. At the same time, allegedly Michael Sussman was hiding from the FBI that he worked for the Clinton campaign. The FBI was hiding from the FISA court that still worked for the Clinton people. So they were like, if you're going to charge Sussman for hiding from the FBI that he worked for the Clinton people, don't you have to hide everybody who signed off on the FISA document? Don't you have to charge every one of them from hiding the same thing from a federal court, which is, in fact, a federal crime? Steve. Well, yeah, you you do, and that's why I don't have any faith in these kinds of investigations, because the moment you start indicting people in the real world, or at least according to the marketing, you know, you keep pulling at the thread until the whole thing unravels and comes apart and you get to the bottom to it. In the case uh, of Durham's investigation, as with the case to most of these investigations, the more you start tugging on that thread, the more all of the beltway just sort of encloses in around you and goes, ah, no, (laughs) no. Because if we start to look at how the FISA warrant for Carter Page came about in the first place, then maybe people are going to ask questions about FISA court in general, or the fact that we have a, you know, completely illegal spying operation that takes place in just about every aspect of our government against its own citizens domestically, fully illegally. so I mean, the, these are the kinds of things where they just want to get out in front of it really quick. And as you said, be like, hey, we got a bad guy, spike the football and, and walk away as quickly as possible and pretend like some sort of justice was done because Michael Sussman did 28 days on, you know, house arrest or had to go like volunteer at an animal shelter for the weekend. Well, and, and here's the biggest question that still has never been answered. Who in the heck is Joseph Mifsud? Who's Joseph Mifsud? The whole time, Carter Page goes to London and some mysterious guy named Joseph Mifsud takes him to Rome, wines and dines him, introduces him to pretty girls. We see pictures of this guy, Joseph Mifsud, with like Boris Johnson and State Department people. Mueller writes down that he met Mifsud in the State Department to talk to him. And he hasn't been seen since. Nobody knows. At one time, this is a fact. You can go online and read this. Find it. The Clinton lawyer said, oh, we don't know. We think he's dead. 
And wouldn't somebody, of course, when when the Clintons say somebody think he's dead, usually, you know, you got to take that, you know, that's usually there's a little something to that. I'm just saying, wouldn't somebody at some point investigating so, say, we're going to go to the Clinton lawyers and ask them where they got that intelligence from? It seems to me that Joseph Mifsud doesn't exist. It seems to me that he was somehow a an invented person by the intelligence community, but he worked with London, he worked with... Italy. He worked with the CIA. So what we have is some kind of a five eyes operation. That was a coup attempt. I don't think much of Trump, but Steve, it seems like there was a coup attempt and Durham's the cover up man. Well, I, I agree that there was a coup attempt and I agree that, that John Durham is the cover up man. What I think we can do at this point, though, gentlemen, is we can crack the case. We have found the ghost of Kiev. <laughs> Joseph Mifsud? The ghost of Kiev is, in fact, Joseph Mitsu. <laughs> We've solved the mystery. We have. Um, I no, you, I mean, you're right. The, this is almost a, a uh, an individual of mythological proportions. And, and again, it just I I always get the sense when there's an pardon me when there's an investigation like this that it's you get a controlled release of information. To where you can make base A or base B just satisfied enough with your team or just angry enough at the other team to keep uh, to to keep the whole shebang rolling, to keep everybody going back to the polls to vote for captured candidates in a corporate captured environment where we have publicly funded elections that are privately owned. And, and I don't. Um, I hate to, to wax cynical, but I don't necessarily think that the kind of justice that America deserves out of something like this is ever going to be seen. So what comes of this at the at the end of the day? Because now we now we're in court. And so when you it, it becomes a little more difficult once you get to court, not impossible, but more difficult because uh, now you've got other judges involved to to sweep this thing under the rug or to just dismiss this as uh, as radio noise. Well, I mean, you do essentially what the Trump campaign did uh, with their election challenges, where you submit briefings that aren't going to meet, you know, that aren't going to meet standing. The way that you introduce the evidence is, has, uh, you know, holes that the defense can drive a truck through in terms of them getting dismissed. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can go about this where Durham can still kind of save, save a little bit of face, where everybody involved can point to some obscure legal technicality and be like, oh, we would have got the cabal this time for good if only, you know. Uh, so, uh, Smoke and mirrors, I think, is, is large. It's smoke and mirrors and fundraising dollars is what people get out of this. Yeah. And I think what it is, you just look at the guy. What was his name? Uh, Kevin Kleinsmith. Right? Kleinsmith, yeah. Kleinsmith is a guy. He was found to have lied. It, it, I mean, he got an email from the CIA, changed the email from Carter Smith, uh, from Carter Page did work with us to to Carter's page, didn't work with us, submitted it to the court, and he got 12 months probation. You know what? I'm guessing Seussman, 12 months probation. In the end, they have a couple people, and they close it before November because the Republicans might start snooping around, and they can put everybody on gag orders and say, we've handled this. There's nothing else to see here. What do you think, Steve? 
Yeah, no, they have to get it done before they swear in the new Congress because the new Congress could then just pick up the ball and keep it rolling. This is something that, that again, they need a, a person or two that they can point at and say, we got him. This is the bad guy. The bad thing happened at all. The, the whole case revolves around this one conviction that will maybe take yeah, at most, you know, 30 actual days of this human being's life from them when they could have otherwise been doing something. It's it's a charade. I don't know of a better, nicer, kinder way to put it. Um, and again, it's just it's a controlled release of information so that people can feel in some way, shape or form good enough about their team or bad enough about the other team to where they'll keep participating in the charade that we call the U.S. electoral process. Steve Poikin, and as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. My assassination being planned, Imran Khan says he has a tape with names of conspirators. Former Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan said that in case something happens to him, a videotape with the names of all the conspirators will be made public. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He is the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas, Dr. David Walalu. As always, Always welcome back. Pleasure to be with you guys. So former uh, Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan on Saturday said that a conspiracy is being hatched and that he has re- recorded a video that has the names of all the people who are involved uh, in the alleged conspiracy. He added that in case something happens, the video will be made public. Uh, I, I would have understood this a couple of weeks ago while there was still a lot of uncertainty in terms of voting and parliament and all that kind of stuff. But now that he's been ousted, uh, is there a, is there real concern of a return of Imran Khan and your thoughts on his discussion about a plot to assassinate him? Well, the idea of assassinations in Pakistan is nothing new. Well, if you look at the history, I'm sure your listeners have heard the stories that happened, for example, with Benazir Bhutto, or even before her with Yaul Haq and all that. It's nothing new. What I found very troubling and concerning at the same time, all of a sudden, a statement like this comes up, uh, just to either to justify whatever, or is it just a smoking screen? Knowing that, how Imran Khan operates, I wouldn't want to put too much stock in this statement for whatever he is issuing. Yes, there will be the upcoming elections, I think, in in the summer or whatever. But this is nothing but a a sort of to sway the public opinion regarding what just took place. I mean, what took place is a major. He was ousted by design. But at the same time, you're going to have to know who the 
key players behind the scenes, including domestic and foreign. And this is why the history of Pakistan, as one who spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, the neighboring country, we were very, very familiar with what was taking place in Awali Pindi and so forth with uh, Al-Qaeda at the time. And uh, Pakistan is a very complicated country to understand. So let's not jump into conclusions by saying just because he issued the statement, we're going to take it at face value. Yeah, the other thing I thought about was this. <clears throat> Again, uh, with him knowing the history, if I were Imran Khan, and even if I didn't have intelligence that that would happen, but if I had a concern, which wouldn't be an unreasonable concern, as you says, have said, knowing the history of Pakistan, could it be a, a chess move thinking, well, I don't know if somebody's out to get me, but... If someone is, I'll say this, that way they'll have to back off because it could be so disruptive to the country that if, you know, any potential move to do that, a move to thwart that, a preemptive move to thwart. Well, I I have to concur with you, Garland, on this point, because here is the thing. Just common sense would suggest that if he will have to, if he is to have access to this info, is going to have to go through the ISI, the Inner Service Intelligence, the equivalency of CIA for us, you know, because how will he get it through all this without the approval of the ISI? And second thing is the army, which has a, that's the umbrella of where ISI is, it's, it's going to have, it's the ones that, that are managing the dynamics within Pakistan. Now, one thing that your listeners need to know, <clears throat> excuse me, is that there is a close relationship between the army and the Central Intelligence Agency here for in the United States. So ISI usually coordinates efforts with the United States moving forward. But at the same time, as I said earlier, I will not jump to the conclusion like this, knowing what I know, understanding how the history of that, that country is. And, 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 and the idea of all of a sudden, uh, Shibhaz Sharif, the guy who replaced him, was none other than the former Nawaz Sharif uh, prime minister who was ousted because of corruption and indicted and so forth. So I won't, I won't jump to conclusions right away. The other thing that gave me pause about this story, and this isn't the first time that individuals, have, have, as we've been talking about, have made statements like this, is <clears throat> if you have the evidence— why wait till you're assassinated? Maybe if you put the evidence out now, I mean, if you have what you say you have, then put it out now so that you can expose the plot before it's executed instead of you being assassinated and then you've got the poison pill in the safe deposit box that your wife has to go and get and put on television. Uh, to me, this the, the logic of this process, you, you kind of uh, you, you, you put in, you put in the, the, the heart, the, the cart before the horse. Exactly. That's why when I heard the story, I had my own sources. People, I was like, no, no, this is nonsense. Because if I am to use history as my guide, I would just go uh, a few years ago when Benazir Bhutto was assassinated in Rawali Pinde. You know, she would have had access to the same information and avoid the trip altogether. That's why it just doesn't make uh, logical sense for him to issue this. This is nothing. And again, this is my personal opinion. It's nothing but to sway the public opinion moving forward. Because here is the thing. With the new prime minister, Shibhash Sharif, because he is under the microscope also. He's being told what to do, knowing that he 
embarked on one particular thing. I need to share it with your listeners. Is that Nawaz, I mean, Shabhaz Sharif has issued now a passport for his brother, the former prime minister who was indicted for corruption, to come back to Pakistan. And that tells you right there where the story is. Here's my question. You know, Pakistan and India have, uh, you know, an adversarial relationship, to say the least. And when I first started searching this, I saw a bunch of these articles on, um, they were news articles from India. Um, How do you think India sees this? You know, I mean, this is a neighbor that they've got adversarial relationships with. There's nuclear weapons there. How do you think India views the dynamics of the instability in Pakistan? And do you think there's one of the people, Imran Khan or Sharif, that they prefer um, over the other? No, no, they won't, because India's thinking in terms of its own uh, domestic security issues. You all remember a couple of years ago when the infiltration from Pakistan into New Delhi with the shooting that took place and so forth. Those were elements it was supported by the ISI at that time. So the dynamics in that part of the world are so complicated. I can't stress this enough. And for some of us, when I say us, I'm referring to politicians in Washington and some analysts, whatever. As I always say, they read a book or two and start calling themselves experts without even speaking the language, without understanding the history, without understanding the culture and the dynamics that exists between Pakistan and India are, are beyond just for us to have a conversation uh, of, of, over a, uh, an hour or two. But here's one thing I need to have your listeners really, really, really pay attention to, which is behind the scenes is the relationship between Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. It's a very, very crucial for them to understand all those dynamics that's going on in Pakistan. My next question before you said that was going to be, if something were uh, nefarious were to happen to Imran Khan, understanding the relationship between Pakistan and China and Pakistan and Russia, what would an assassination of Imran Khan, would that have any implications as it relates to those two countries? Uh, You mean to Saudi Arabia and China? And Russia. Russia. Well, let's start with Saudi Arabia briefly here. For Saudi Arabia, if you notice, uh, throughout the history of Pakistan, any time a new prime minister is inaugurated, where does he go first? Saudi Arabia. That is the first stop. That's like for us in the United States, at least a couple of years ago, the the president, when he's inaugurated, where does he go? He goes to the allies first. Well, the reason for that is because Saudis are supporting financially Pakistan. And for one particular reason, it has to do with, uh, uh, all I can say here is, in general term, is weapons. You know, you can read between the lines what I'm referring to here. That is one of the things. Why? Because who supported the programs, the military one that is in Pakistan, financially? It was the Saudis. But also in return, uh, Pakistan allowed this or allowed uh, over the years the establishment of what we call the madrasas for the Wahhabism ideology. As a matter of fact, the intelligence services in the West, and I'm going to just cite in general terms here, uh, MI5, MI6, the Bundesliga in Germany, and even the United States CIA, and even the EU in the intelligence department. The estimation was that the Saudis spent over $100 billion in establishing those religious 
establishment that calls madrasas to further uh, sort of expand the Wahhabism ideology, which we all know that was the result of 9-11. As to China and, and, and uh, Russia, well, Pakistan has good relationship with China, except now things are changing. You all heard about the, the assassination attempt on the Chinese ambassador in Pakistan. That was done for a reason. Uh, uh, on the other hand, as far as Russia, and this one, by the way, it is tied to the uh, CPEC, which is the uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, in, in spe- especially in Belushistan, where China is developing the port and so forth. As to Russia, it does not have much with Pakistan as much as it does with India. However, Pakistan is trying to sort of be uh, on the graces of Russia and China on both sides, while knowing that Russia is the main supporter of India when it comes down to weapons. And this is why you're seeing Pakistan also reached out to Russia, maybe to get some type of weapons, but it's not going to be at the same level India gets. And how does Afghanistan play into it in that the Afghanistan, you know, they have uh, some significant issues with hunger, with, uh, you know, hunger and uh, they're trying to China and Russia seem to be both establishing relationships with the Taliban government. That's a big issue because stability in in Afghanistan or lack thereof translates to stability or lack thereof in Pakistan. Remember, there are two types of Taliban. There are those in Afghanistan and there are those in Pakistan. Yet the leadership of the Taliban in Afghanistan resides in Pakistan. This is why uh, all we need to do on our end in the West, if we want to make chaos, create chaos in Pakistan, just unleash some uh, religious fanatics inside Pakistan and you get the turmoil going on. So this is why when the 9-11 happened and uh, the, when uh, uh, UBL, Osama Bin Laden at that time, fled, well, it fled because of the assistance of the ISI. That's where the story was back then. Of course, couldn't be disclosed. But just to give your listeners an idea of how much the ISI has its hand into the direction, whatever the government in Pakistan or Islamabad does. Dr. David Walalu, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure, guys. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Consortium News entitled, Live Action Role Play in Ukraine. Malcolm Nance, Dennis Diaz, and Willie Joseph Cancel. 
Their experiences, one fatal, offer a sobering view of Americans in the International Legion of Territorial Defense of Ukraine. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the disarmament of weapons of mass destruction and author of this piece, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. You write, it was literally a made-for-television moment. A former U.S. Navy chief petty officer turned cable news pundit dressed in a fresh-out-of-the-box camouflage uniform replete with body armor and magazine pouches, wearing matching camouflage helmet and gloves and cradling an automatic rifle, stared into the camera and announced, I'm here to help this country, Ukraine, fight what is essentially a war of extermination. With a Ukrainian flag on his left shoulder and a U.S. flag emblazoned on his body armor, the man, Malcolm Nance, declared that this is an existential war and Russia has brought it to these people and is mass murdering civilians. (laughs) Scott Ritter, uh, your thoughts on uh, this as you describe it, live action role play in Ukraine. What's the danger of what Malcolm Nance is doing, what Dennis Diaz is doing, and what Willie Joseph Cancel did? Well, I'll tell you what the danger isn't, that their presence on the battlefield will have any um, chance of altering the inevitable outcome. Um, This is a war between Russia and Ukraine. And um, Russia is prevailing, and uh, there there is slim to no chance that um, any mercenary type um, intervention by uh, persons, American or otherwise, will somehow alter uh, the the outcome. So, um, right off the bat, we have to basically define everything that Nance Diaz cancel. And any other Americans who might be uh, thinking about going over there who are already there as an exercise in fatal futility. Now, Malcolm Nance may survive. The odds of Malcolm Nance seeing the front lines are slim to none. Um, He's just not that kind of guy. Um, He doesn't have the experience. Uh, He's always been a blowhard. Uh, He's about selling Malcolm Nance. He's not about sacrificing Malcolm Nance. So, You know, Malcolm Nance is just one giant propaganda exercise. Unfortunately, he gets a lot of airtime and he um, he's being used by the Ukrainians and, you know, by by the Western media as a mechanism of um, romanticizing um, uh, death. Because, again, if you go over there, uh, the odds are you're going to die if you actually reach the front line. Um, Diaz. You know, he, 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 <laughs> I, I felt bad picking him out, but I just felt that he symbolized um, fat, overweight, middle-aged um, former uh, veterans who are floundering in their own lives here at home and uh, looking for um, a, a, a journey, an adventure that can uh, revitalize their lives. Because that's what this was all about to him. This was an exercise in, you know, making him somehow relevant once again. Um, he never deployed because at the end of the day, um, 
it was probably all a put on by him, just one way to gain uh, uh, attention. Um, and uh, even if he wanted to go, <laughs> the Ukrainians, um, I think they got tired of taking fat, middleweight, um, <laughs> fat, overweight, middle-aged uh, Americans because uh, they don't perform well on the battlefield. And Cancel is just a tragic, a tragic story. A young Marine um, who had a hard time in the Marine Corps was had a bad conduct discharge. Uh, it's generally the the kiss of death. Um, you know, no no Western military would ever take him. He had no combat experience, um, and yet he somehow bluffed his way uh, through uh, through the, the the force of his uh, age and uh, you know his his, his uh, former association with the Marine Corps. Uh, to make it to the front lines in Ukraine, um, and he died because ultimately that's what will happen to you when you go to the front lines as somebody who's not part of an organized fighting team. Um, you know, he he was part of a four-man team. That's not. I mean, that that may work in special forces when you're doing limited scope operations. You know, uh, Delta Force SEALs use a four-person team uh, as their basic building block, um, but when you're in a trench line uh, getting shelled by the Russians, um, you know, being a member of a four-man American team who has no experience training with each other, knowing each other, not part of a larger system of support, it's just an invitation to die. Uh, and I called it live-action role-play because that's what it is. It's uh, airsoft, which uh, which is basically a bunch of uh, adults dressing up like soldier, going out and reenacting, um, you know, past glories of other people. Uh, you know, it's, it's airsoft for wannabe warriors. Uh, that's, that's all, uh, that's all that Ukraine is most. Uh, I think there was a Canadian observer who uh, was quoted saying, look, most of the people that want to get over here are people that have never had combat experience. They want to get a whiff of combat experience and they get the hell out of there. Uh, it's just basically, it's about lost souls, people who aren't satisfied with their lives, uh, seeking to redefine themselves overseas. And, um, you know, really that's, Ukraine's not the place to do that, man. Uh, go climb Mount Everest or something, but um, don't don't go to Ukraine because you will die. Let's be honest about this, Scott. The, the nature of warfare, and you know, and I mean, look, you are a commander, and you got a bunch of guys, and you've got well-trained soldiers that are valuable to what you're trying to accomplish in, as a whole. So you got this bunch of guys, 50, 100 guys. And over here, you got 25 schmucks that they sent you that don't know what they're doing. And you're like, well, we need to pull back or else we're all going to get wiped out. But we need a speed bump for the Russians. What are you going to do if these schmucks that they sent you get wiped out? Eh, you know, it's not good, but you need your value. You got artillery people. You got snipers. You got people that got years of training. You need them for the long term. The, the, the honesty of the matter is if you're the commander in the field. You're going to send the schmucks out to be a, a, a speed bump, and you're going to get your guys back so they can be used for the long run. I know it doesn't sound kind. You know, I'm an ex-cop. It doesn't sound kind, but am I wrong in saying that that's reality, that you're in all likelihood at some point going to be a speed bump? Yes. I mean, the, if you – look, we, we saw that. And it doesn't even matter your level of training. Uh, the, you know, in 1941, with the Germans driving on Moscow, uh, the Russians took some very fine troops who uh, had yet to had, had not had the opportunity to gel into, you know, a uh, a, a, a cohesive uh, unit and threw them in the line 
with the goal of uh, slowing the Russian, uh, the Germans down, while better troops came up uh, from Siberia so that they could, uh, you know, eventually launch a counterattack. Today, right now, we see the Ukrainians mobilizing territorial brigades, uh, which are basically reservists from the rear areas uh, who are only supposed to be mobilized for immediate defense of their zone, taking these people who have no weapons, no training, no experience, and literally throwing them in the front line to plug holes to slow the Russians down while they attempt to rebuild um, you know, more combat-capable mobile units using equipment coming in from uh, – you know, the United States and, uh, and other NATO countries. I mean, this is just the nature of war. You, you know, even, even your elite units, if, if you need to plug a hole, you plug a hole with what you got. Um, and if you're a foreign fighter, um, first of all, most of these foreign fighters are just a pain in the neck to the Ukrainians. Let's just be frank. Um, they're, they're not very capable. They're not capable at all. They exist for propaganda purposes. Many of them have turned into criminal elements of their own, um, using their existence to raise money uh, to then receive uh, goods that they sell on the black market. There's this whole brigade called the Normandy uh, Brigade uh, run by a French-Canadian. It's just one giant scam. They don't fight. They steal. They rob. And the Ukrainians view them as uh, more of a detriment than an asset. Um, in the rare occasions, you get uh, units that uh, want to fight, like Cancel's team. Um, they get thrown into into the hole, and they're expected to fill the hole and uh, die in place if necessary. Uh, but they're, you know, these aren't elite troops that the Ukrainians are holding back. Many of these people think uh, we're, you know, because we're Westerners, we've got, you know, skill, talent. Even though their resume doesn't have any skill, talent that the uh, Ukrainians are desperate for and will be used for the dramatic, uh, you know raid on Osama bin Laden type activity because we're Americans. Uh, no, you're, you're, you're going to die in the, uh, in, in, in the fields of, uh, of the Donbass uh, in a trench line, um, shaking, pooping your pants, whatever you do when artillery lands next to you and then on you, and then your body's not recoverable, like cancel. What about the stories that we've been hearing over the last couple of days about Ukrainian success? And Russian retreat. Well, I mean, first of all, Ukraine is a huge battlefield. I don't think uh, your average American understands uh, just what kind of massive scale we're talking about in terms of uh, territory. Um, and I, I think, you know, a, a couple of things. One, never, ever, 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 and I'll emphasize that, underestimate the professionalism of the Ukrainian armed forces. These people are well-trained, well-equipped, um, and when they're well-motivated and well-led, they are capable of doing things. And um, even a wounded dog, when back into a corner, can bite pretty hard. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, they're, you know much of their, for instance, uh, there's much being made of this uh, counterattack north of Kharkov that uh, has closed with the Russian border. First of all, I think some of the imagery that they're showing dates back to April, you know, so it's not current. Second of all, who cares? Uh, Russia doesn't. I don't think Russia's losing any sleep. They're like, you want, you want to play around on this tree line here? Go ahead. Um, we're down here slaughtering your people, to retaking uh, Donbass, um, you know, which is something that's happening on a daily basis. The absolute murder uh, that, that's occurring 
uh, in eastern Ukraine right now is, um, I mean, to be honest, I, I, I follow this closely on a number of uh, on Russian channels and um, the Telegram channels. And the even the, you know, in the early days, um, the Russians were talking hard. You know, we're denazifying, we're doing... Right now, they're, they're they're simply sickened because it's slaughter. I mean, even the Russians are like, guys, this isn't even fun anymore. Um, you know, this is this is the this is sad because they're not even putting up a fight. The way the, the way it's going on right now. I mean, a, a Russian commander said, you know, we're not. This isn't World War II where we yell, "Ooh, go over the front line and charge the position." This is we pound them until they cower in a hole. Then we come up and we shoot them point blank. And and we suffer hardly any losses. They suffer unbearable losses. They leave their wounded behind. They abandon their dead. They run for their lives. Um, and that's just the way the battle goes, from one trench line to the next trench line to the next trench line. The Russians are in no rush. Uh, they they want as few casualties as possible, um, as many uh, Ukrainian casualties. Now, this means that they're they're focusing most of their artillery and most of their heavy forces in this area. Uh, because there's only 200,000 Russians involved. This is a special military operation, not a general war. There has not been a general mobilization. Um, you know, the Russians will, you know, again, use the principle of screening. I mean, anybody who studied the military, we have our main effort, so we're going to put screening forces out on the flanks. Now, the enemy, uh, believing that the screening forces uh, represent a weakness, will focus their strength on the screening force, and can and, and can push the screening force around. The screening force is designed to be pushed around. What don't people understand about this? What's happening north of Kharkov is not the main effort. It is a distraction. It is a diversion. And in many ways, it's a trap. Because what you're not reading about is what happened to the guys after they took the photograph at the border. They're all dead. Um, now there was a you know there, there uh, I, I said a wounded dog can bite hard, especially with plastic in the corner. The Russians were trying to make a crossing of a, of a river uh, at the same place that the Ukrainians had tried to cross earlier. Uh, when the Ukrainians tried to cross, heavy artillery bombardment destroyed dozens of Ukrainian vehicles. The Russians turned around and tried to cross. Well, guess what? The Ukrainians had pre-registered that area. And Russia learned a hard lesson, which is when you put a lot of troops in one, combined, in one confined space and artillery rains down on you, you die in large numbers. And the Russians got their butts waxed. Then they pulled back and want to understand they received the um, butt chewing of a lifetime. Uh, some people came down and said, that's not how you do it. What the heck's your problem? Let's retrain you and re remind you what you're supposed to do, how we're supposed to fight this. Then they went in and they slaughtered the Ukrainians. They got in over that river. They got in behind the and, and they and they wiped them out. So the concept that the Ukrainians are winning anything is absurd. They're not winning anything. I got to stop you there. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.